Episode 20, Caesar Augustus and the Rise of the Empire. Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and try to see how those events shaped our modern world. This is episode 20, Caesar Augustus and the Rise of the Empire. So last episode, we left Julius Caesar lying on the floor in a pool of blood. Some in the Senate were very happy about this, but generally speaking, most of Rome liked Caesar and were not happy about it. The senators who assassinated him had a clear picture of what they did not want, a tyrant ruling over them. But they did not have a good clear picture of what they did want, and they didn't have anyone ready to step into the vacuum of power that existed after the center of their government, that is, Caesar, was removed. And now, much of the city of Rome was mad at the Senate. After a welcome period of peace during the reign of Caesar, everyone knew that now there was going to be more trouble. Caesar had become the center of power in Rome, and with him gone, there was basically no one in charge. Some people expected to return to the Republic structure, but that had really been changed by Caesar's time in power. He had made sweeping changes, and it wasn't easy to undo them. In the moments right after Caesar was killed, the senators left the building, and they went out into the streets to try to rouse the people in support of the idea of returning to the Republic, and they hoped to gain the support of the people But they didn't. Caesar's body was left lying on the floor. Eventually, some of his household slaves came and got the body and took it home. Meanwhile, Mark Antony, who might have stood up as Caesar's successor, instead fled the city, as had Cassius and Brutus, who led the assassination. The city calmed down for a few days. But then, Caesar's will was made public, and it was read aloud in several public places. Caesar had left a considerable amount of his extremely vast wealth to the people of Rome, but he had also left a lot to his adopted heir, Octavian. Mark Antony came back to Rome to deliver Caesar's funeral address, and then in the address he showed people the blood-stained toga that Caesar had died in. This sparked a riot in the streets. Mark Antony and a general named Lepidus then took control of Rome and calmed things down. But the Senate saw him as potentially another Caesar, and they didn't support him. And then Octavian himself returned to Rome as well. The leading orator in the Senate, a guy named Cicero, supported Octavian. Cicero convinced the Senate to declare Mark Antony an enemy of the state, and so Mark Antony and his legions, the ones that were loyal to him, retreated to the north of Italy. Octavian and his legions went up, and they fought a battle, but it was sort of a draw. Okay, we'll call it a tie. Then Octavian rethought his strategy, and he invited Mark Antony and Lepidus together. And then together, they created the second triumvirate. Octavian got Italy, Spain, and Gaul. Lepidus got the city of Rome itself, plus the coast of North Africa. And Mark Antony got Illyrium, Greece, Syria, Judea, and Egypt all of the eastern part of Roman territory. This three-way power sharing isn't going to last, is it? No, it's not going to last. Antony falls in love with Cleopatra, doesn't he? Yes, he does. And that was kind of his undoing. 
Antony set up his headquarters in Alexandria, Egypt, and while he was there, he fell in love with Cleopatra, who had also been Caesar's lover. Didn't I say this would make a great soap opera? Antony eventually marries her, though, and they have three kids together. However, Antony only does a so-so job of ruling the east part of the Roman Empire. I guess he was kind of distracted with Cleopatra and the three kids and all. In 37 BC, though, Antony does succeed in driving the Parthians, who are sort of the descendants of the Persians, out of Syria. Antony installed a guy named Herod as the king of Judea. Yes, that Herod. Yes, we're getting close. We're getting so close. Herod, as a Roman king of the province, embarked on a massive building campaign that included new cities, a huge fortress in the desert on a mountaintop called Masada, and an incredible rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. Herod's temple was supposedly magnificent, but it wouldn't even last a hundred years. We'll come back to Herod in a bit. Meanwhile, Octavian sailed down with several legions to the north coast of Africa, where Lepidus was, and persuaded all of Lepidus's legions to defect to him. The legions then handed Lepidus over to Octavian, who eventually had him placed under house arrest outside of Rome. Lepidus will spend the rest of his life there in house arrest. So now it's just Octavian and Mark Antony competing to see who will be Caesar's replacement. And they really didn't like each other. In 32 BC, Octavian had Mark Antony's will read aloud to the Senate. Antony had left most of his estate to the kids that he had had with Cleopatra. The Senate was furious about this. The Senate then agreed to name Antony an enemy of the state as well, and granted Octavian the power to raise an army and a navy to go fight him. So both Octavian and Antony began raising armies and navies. In September of 31 BC, Mark Antony's navy met Octavian's navy in the coastal waters near Actium on the west side of Greece. Actium is maybe the most famous naval battle to ever happen. It's as famous as the Greeks fighting at Salamis. Both sides had about 50,000 soldiers on land, but as Octavian's troops approached, more than half of Antony's soldiers defected. Mark Antony and Cleopatra together had about 500 ships, but they could only man half of them or less because many of the sailors were sick, and then many of them also defected. So Antony went out to battle with about 150 ships to about 250 for Octavian. Octavian's ships were smaller and more maneuverable, and they were able to separate many of Antony's ships from the formation and then destroy them. At some point in the battle, Cleopatra's ships all began to retreat to the open sea, and then Antony took some of his ships to follow them as well. At that point, the rest of Mark Antony's fleet collapsed, and Octavian's ships began to systematically destroy the remaining part of Antony's fleet. Antony and Cleopatra sailed to Alexandria in Egypt to escape. For his part, apparently, Octavian remained at sea at the battle site overnight, staying up all night helping to rescue sailors from burning ships and from the water. The next day, the rest of Antony's soldiers defected to Octavian's side, and they all headed back to Rome. Octavian waited there until the next spring, and then in July of 30 BC, he sailed to Alexandria. Upon hearing that Octavian was coming, Mark Antony stabbed himself in the stomach with a sword, but he didn't die immediately. He was taken to where Cleopatra was hiding and apparently died in her arms. She then also committed suicide, possibly by having a poisonous snake bite her. Like I said, it's quite a soap opera. 
Octavian took both of their bodies back to Rome and gave them both honorable public funerals. Octavian also forgave most of his enemies, though he did have Caesarion, who was Caesar and Cleopatra's son, put to death, as well as one of Mark Antony's sons. Octavian then had a triple triumph parade for himself. Yay me! And he had the doors of the Temple of Janus closed to signify that Rome was no longer at war. At this point, Octavian made a big show of transferring his powers back to the Senate, making it clear that he respected the Republic and its institutions and structures. However, he still controlled all the legions of Rome, and everybody knew that he was the one who was actually in charge. They left it this way because everyone was ready for more peace and prosperity. So they kept the Senate together and kept up a show of the Republic continuing. But this was really the beginning of the Roman Empire. So why do we call it an empire? Well, it comes from the Latin word imperator, which was an honorary title given to successful Roman generals. It means victor or conqueror. Octavian kept the title for the rest of his life, and because he was known as the imperator, the land he ruled became known as an empire. The official title that was given to him was Caesar Augustus, which means basically the honored member of Caesar's family. But of course, Caesar, the word, now comes to be the common word that people use for the ruler of Rome. The fact that the Bible uses the word Caesar in several places in the New Testament kind of cemented this practice into a number of Western languages, including English. By the way, the Bible uses Caesar to refer to at least four different people, Augustus, Tiberius, Claudius, and Nero. For himself, Octavian preferred to be called princeps, which means first citizen. He tried to make a big show of not being the king, but everyone knew he was. One of the things he did was to consolidate power by making everything in the city revolve around him. He also created the Praetorian Guard, which was a separate group of legions, sort of his own bodyguard. And it was a military force designed to protect the imperial structure and support the emperor. And it was also allowed to operate in Rome, which was a major departure from Roman traditions. Usually the military had to stay out of the city. The Praetorian Guard eventually becomes a very important part of the succession of emperors because whoever controlled the Praetorian Guard controlled who became the next emperor. Octavian, who from now on is usually referred to as Caesar Augustus, ruled the entire Roman Empire from the tip of Spain up into northern France, part of Britain, all of Italy, the Balkans, Greece, Syria, Judea, Egypt, and North Africa. Augustus and the Romans now controlled all of the Mediterranean Sea, all the way back around to the tip of Africa, just across from the tip of Spain. Back in Rome, he reformed the Roman tax system, making it fairer for the poor, though people were still very heavily taxed. He created an empire-wide postal service, he had Roman roads built throughout the empire, and he rebuilt much of the city of Rome, including some important temples. In a way, it was kind of a, a golden era for Rome. There was peace and prosperity throughout most of the empire, though there was often trouble out in the provinces. Part of why this worked and why the Roman empire lasts for another 400 plus years is that the imperial structure that had initially been started by Julius Caesar and then was improved on by Augustus was a very stable structure. It balanced the needs of the plebeians, the patricians, the legions, and the imperial bureaucracy. And a great part of Roman prosperity was built on wealth from conquered nations and from taxation. 
also on the millions of slaves that Rome had captured. So while Rome kept conquering and kept enslaving, the good times continued, but that will eventually end. The legions and the imperial bureaucracy kept all of these elements under control, occasionally with brute force. The Roman Empire was really, really brutal with the people who openly resisted it, and I hope to look at this in more depth in some future episodes. One of Augustus's big challenges during his reign was how to deal with the Parthians. These are the descendants of the Persian Empire that I mentioned earlier. He made peace with them rather than fight them, but the Parthians would continue to be a thorn in the side of the empire for a long time. But during Augustus's reign, they stayed mostly on the far side of the Euphrates, and they left the province of Syria alone. Syria was ruled by several different client kings that Rome put into place. It wasn't directly administered by Rome at first. It was kind of a backwater place, sort of like the Roman version of Arkansas or something. One of the client kings, that is the king of Judea, was Herod the Great. In 4 BC, Herod the Great died. He had completed a massive rebuild of the temple in Jerusalem, and it was now basically the equal of any temple in Rome. He had presided over a Roman system where the Jews basically got to govern their own affairs as long as they stayed peaceful and paid their taxes to Rome. Though the Jews were proud of the temple, they hated the Romans and the Herodians. When Herod died, Augustus broke up his little kingdom into three parts, giving a part to each of Herod's sons. Herod Antipas ruled over Galilee, Philip got the area to the north known as the Decapolis, and Archelaus ruled Judea and Samaria. Archelaus was a terrible ruler, and so in AD 6, Augustus replaced him with a Roman procurator. This is the office that will eventually be held by Pontius Pilate. But wait, wait, did you see what we just did there? Just sort of snuck right in, didn't it? BC has ended, and we're into AD. We're no longer before Christ. We are now Anno Domine. We've been counting the years backwards in this podcast since episode one, but now We'll be counting upwards. The Romans, of course, didn't count it this way. They were still counting from the beginning of Julius Caesar's calendar. In the year 59 of the Julian calendar, that's AD 14 by our modern calendar, Caesar Augustus died. Augustus did not have any children of his own, so his adopted heir, Tiberius, who had somewhat helped Augustus rule in the later years of his reign, became the new Caesar. Augustus was in poor health the last year of his reign, and he knew that he was dying, and so he made plans to set up Tiberius as his successor, and so the succession was peaceful. Caesar Augustus's last words were, Have I played the part well? Then applaud as I exit. Perhaps indicating that he knew that a lot of what was going on was kind of an act. Anyway, Caesar Augustus's reign marked the beginning of the Roman Empire, even if it continued to act like it was a republic for a few more generations. But Augustus had set the standard for how to be a good emperor. He was in control. He paid a great deal of attention to the details of what was going on in Rome and in the provinces. He was fully engaged as the ruler of Rome, and this was true of all the good emperors down through the empire. Most of the really bad ones were disengaged from ruling, and they were more concerned with torturing their enemies, or pursuing their various vices. But all the good ones looked back to Augustus as their model. He was just, he was fair, he was engaged, he balanced fairly the needs of the different classes, he didn't tolerate corruption, he passed fair laws and tried to have them fairly enforced, 
He expanded the empire. He developed infrastructure. He went to the front with the legions. He tried to be a moral example to the people of Rome. It's sort of sad that the Roman Republic ended as it did, but in some ways, Rome was better ruled by the emperors, at least the good ones, like Augustus. John Adams said about the U.S. government just after the Constitution had been ratified, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And look at what we have right now. It's kind of the same for any government. Any governmental structure can be perverted by corrupt men and women, whether it's an empire or a republic or a republican democracy. If you have corrupt men and women who are only out for their own fame, fortune, and power, they can pervert the governmental structure. If your government, whatever the structure, is no longer made up of moral people who are willing to put the good of the common people before their own good or the good of the wealthy people who fund them, then your government will stop serving the people. It will serve the interests of the wealthy, or it will serve the interests of the government itself and just try to accumulate more power. But if the structure is still good, if you can put more moral people back into positions within the government, you can still have a government that does look out for the interests of its people. Do you think we have that at this point? I don't think so. So Augustus, despite becoming the first emperor, did a good job of looking out for the good of all of Rome. And he's justly remembered as one of the best rulers, not just of Rome, but in all of history. So from here on, we're looking at the Roman Empire and no longer the Roman Republic. But wait, we did miss one really important thing that happened during Augustus's reign. At the very height of Augustus's empire, in literally the farthest corner of the empire, in a tiny backwater town, an unmarried couple gave birth to their first son, who was born in a shed where they kept animals. Next week, we will look at his story, the reason we switched from B.C. to A.D. We will look at another king, one of the few people in all of history who are more well-known and more important than Caesar Augustus or Julius Caesar. Any guesses? Any guesses?